been holding late-night talks in Berlin to review a shaky ceasefire in eastern Ukraine agreed in February. Germany's Frank-Walter Steinmeier said the situation remained fragile and that the meeting would try to make progress on delivering aid. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to this Tuesday's edition of Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks decline and the dollar rises as emerging market equities climb. Hong Kong stocks extend their weekly rally as Hong Kong exchange surges to a record and China's growth rate is likely to have slipped in the first quarter to the slowest pace since 2009. Greed has never felt so good to Hong Kong bulls chasing stock gains. It's something we'll discuss in more depth this morning with our local markets guest today, Francis Lun of GEO Securities. We'll also take a look at the features of the Apple Watch and at a more Pacific, a Korean cosmetics group that has Asian consumers eating out of its palms. Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg News' uh, Liza Lin joins us by phone from Shanghai to tell us more about this. Enzio Von File of Private Capital is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Renita. So, Enzio, can Hong Kong stocks get any higher? Oh, absolutely. They were <laughs> greed is good in this case. You may as well just go with the flow. So, we're certainly feeling quite happy at Private Capital about things at this stage. Certainly of the cycle. have. A knack for saying all the right things, don't you, Enzio? <laughs> it's not political. This yeah, is not a paid Enzio political announcement. The bull. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I can hear Francis enjoying that. Okay. Hold that thought. We'll be coming to you. Thank you. U.S. stocks closed uh, lower last night, ending three consecutive days of gains as uh, investors remain cautious ahead of earnings season. Developing market equities capped their longest rally in years as a surprise drop in Chinese exports fueled speculation of more stimulus. Eric Robertson is the head of cross-asset strategy at Standard Chartered, and he says that equities in emerging markets remain cheap and significantly under-owned. If you think about emerging market equities and emerging market assets so far this year and even over the last couple of years, relative to their developed market equivalents, they've been significantly out of favor. If you track fund flows the way we do, you see significant outflows out of emerging market equity funds and to a lesser degree emerging market assets generally, which is in stark contrast to the flows that we've seen, for example, into Japanese equities and European equities. So. From a valuation point of view, when we think about emerging market equities, we still think they're cheap. And the other thing is they are significantly underowned. And when you finally take into account the fact that we've seen 25 discrete examples of central bank policy easing this year, a number of them coming from the emerging markets, central banks are adding a significant amount of liquidity, and that should be supportive for emerging market equities. So what about the Hong Kong market rally? Is this a function of retail participation or mutual fund flow or institutional money on top of that? We think there's a broad mix. But if again, if we go back to the single most important data point that we observe when we think about the equity markets, which is institutional investor flows, institutional investor flows into emerging market equities, 
including China, including Hong Kong, including non-Japan Asia generally, are still extremely light. And so, yes, for the most part, we're seeing significant retail flow. Yes, there's institutional flow. But as I said earlier, we think there's significant scope for institutions to improve their weightings in the region and in the asset class. The Dow closed down half a percent to 17,977. The S&P 500 slipped by half a percent to 2,092 after three days of gains, while the Nasdaq fell two-tenths of a percent to 4,988 after briefly topping 5,000 points. The U.S. dollar is poised to gain as the U.S. economic uh, data looks set to improve in the second quarter relative to the first. Is the dollar's trajectory upward once again after a three-week blip? Here's Jeremy Stretch, head of foreign exchange strategy at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce in London. I think it probably is. We've seen uh, a lot of negative economic surprises over the course of the last few weeks. Clearly, uh, that payrolls miss on uh, on Good Friday was was the sort of the nadir of that. And I think we're now getting back to a scenario where we're looking at the data, and I suspect if we see reasonable retail sales data this week, we're getting back to an assumption that the U.S. economy is, is... performing better as we look at Q2 rather than Q1. And I think on a relative basis, looking at elsewhere, there are a number of caveats to suggesting the other currency is going to do relatively well. So by default, the the dollar also gets strength on the basis of that. The World Bank has cut its economic growth forecasts for China and developing East Asia for this year and warns of significant risks from global uncertainties, including the potential impact of a strengthening American dollar and higher U.S. interest rates. The World Bank says that China's GDP growth is likely to slow to 7.1% this year and 7% in 2016. This is after expanding 7.4% last year. And the revised forecasts for China are one-tenth of a percent uh, lower for both this year as well as the next. The local stock market has broken above the 28,000 level for the first time in seven years. The benchmark Hang Seng Index finished at 28,016 yesterday. This is up uh, 743 points or 2.7% on the day. And the index has now risen 14% in the past eight sessions as the Hong Kong market plays catch up with Shanghai and expectations are that still more money will pour in here hunting for bargains. Peter Alexander is the managing director of Z-Ben Advisors, and he discusses whether the rally in Hong Kong is structural or stimulus-driven. Over the last decade, we had the rally of 0607 that was more structural in, in, in its basis. Right. But 2009, we also had a pretty strong rally, but that was stimulus-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, the rally in 07 was better part of two years. Mm-hmm. The one in 2009 was about eight months. Mm-hmm. We're at about eight months right now in the current rally, and it's definitely got steam behind it. And we can see, just based on last week, how it's moved now over into Hong Kong through, as you pointed out, Stock Connect on the southbound side. Andrew Sullivan is a managing director of sales trading at Haitung International Securities and also regular guest host right here on Money for Nothing. And he says that the rally in Hong Kong will continue, but it may slow down this week due to a slew of listings in China. I think that, I mean, there's potential for it to keep going. I think this week we may see it slowing slightly, but mainly due to the fact that there's 24 IPOs coming out in China. So that's mm-hmm. going to focus a lot of that retail money in the short term. Okay. We saw that slightly on Friday, that the, the volume on southbound through the direct link was, uh, was down and wasn't fulfilled, whereas it had been on the Wednesday and the Thursday. The, the thing that people have focused on has obviously been the brokerages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we've seen over the weekend that China's going to allow people to open accounts at more than one brokerage. Mm-hmm. So that's going to allow for 
more leverage, which I think could be a dangerous thing when the, you know, when the mu music stops, you don't yeah. want to be holding the baby. Right. Uh, and a lot of this money is, is margin finance, so there's going to be some concerns there that you know, if it goes wrong, there's going to be a lot of hurt. All right, let's bring in our markets guest this morning, Francis Lun, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Renita. Welcome back to the show. Yes. And uh, welcome back, uh, you know, amidst all of this excitement. Um, yeah, it's a once-in-a-decade rally. Really? Is it once-in-a-decade? Yep. That's yep. right. We we gorge uh, one year out of a decade, and then we, we suffer and go hungry for the, the rest nine years. Oh, goodness. Okay, well then, <laughs> I mean, one has to ask right off the bat, what are the next targets? The blue chips? Well, uh, right now there are several really what you call the hot uh, uh, sectors. Of course, uh, the brokers is, uh, is one. And then you have the AH uh, uh, parity. Uh, some shares are trading at something like uh, 20% of the A shares. So, so that's one. And, and, and then you have the uh, infrastructure place, the uh, 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 Asian Investment Bank concept. So, so you have uh, several of them going together. Enzio, you had a question? Francis, without wanting to rain on anybody's parade, what do you think could cause this market to have a crash and when could that happen? Well, uh, government intervention. Uh, don't forget, January 19th, the CSRC announced that they're investigating 30 brokers and then they uh, stopped three leading brokers from doing margin mm. financing. And the market crashed 20% right there. So, and I think the central government believes the market is overly uh, uh, speculative and the bubble is too big. They will intervene and then the market will crash just like a rock. And margin financing, I mean, you bring up a good point. And yeah. Andrew uh, Sullivan was earlier talking about leveraging. You yeah. know, not too long ago, China used to be a cash market. But That's now, right. now you've got the situation where the amount of leveraging in China has gone crazy. Mm -hmm. And what does this mean, you know, given everything that's happening? Well, it means the bubble is bigger, much bigger than before. Uh, uh, previously, you may, may have one trillion uh, yuan. Now you have two, two or three trillion yuan playing the stock market. So, 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 so you have the Shanghai Asia Index breaking barriers one by one. So, so the next target uh, barrier to break is not really five thousand; it's six thousand. The the historic high. So, given all of this, would you say that China equities are still cheap? No, definitely no. not. Because uh, I, I think uh, Asia is uh, average over thirty. Now it's approaching forty times PE. And uh, I think only the banks are reasonable. Francis, you said you taught me a, a Chinese word before, daima, big yeah. mama. Um, when is big mama going to stop going shopping? Well, uh, well, you see, uh, they, they stopped buying gold. Two years ago, they prevented gold from falling through uh, 1,000 US dollars per ounce. Uh, right now, all their money, all their bets are on stocks because they make money. Uh, uh, and, and as long as the party goes on, they will not stop because they, they will continue to milk it. And, and when the government intervenes, I think that will stop the uh, party. Certainly, everybody uh, wants to get in on the game, especially yeah. given that what we're hearing from everyone is, you know, there's still steam. Yeah. Uh, you know, the stocks are still on the upswing. So these... Um, 
eight shares that you were talking about earlier that are yeah. 20% of Asia's, what are they? Enlighten us. Uh, well, uh, the, the top candidate is uh, Sherman Port 3378. Uh, not, it has gone from like uh, two dollars to four seventy yesterday. Mm. So, but the Asia is still trading at something like twenty one yuan. So that is a huge discount, and 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 I don't know why the 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 uh, the the. the uh, uh, the 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 quotron the machines the, uh, uh, don't report that they they report the the top uh, discount uh, par- uh, disparity is Zhejiang Si Bao which is one o five seven but actually it is not it's Xiamen Port three three seven eight and why specifically that one well because. This has the the, the enormous discount. Mm. Previously, it was something like eighty uh, percent, the largest of anyone. So, yeah. because nobody has discovered it, now somebody has discovered it, and now uh, uh, speculators are playing on it. Well, they're certainly going to be discovering it this morning, listening to this show. <laughs> After this show, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what else can we discover? Well, uh, uh, Guomei is is a surprising uh, 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 stock. Uh, it gained something like one hundred percent over the past week, but I think it's may it may be overbought. And uh, of course, I think uh, uh, Hong Kong exchanges and also Tencent are overbought because uh, you have uh, uh, Pony Ma. Uh, uh, selling off, I think he cashed in something like 3.5 billion Hong Kong dollars already. So that is a sign of uh, really uh, market coming to its peak. Uh-huh. And uh, if you look at the ETFs, the Asia ETFs, actually you find out that the, the institution are actually liquidating their gains. What do you think about that, Enzio, the ETFs, the Asia ETFs? I'm a great believer in ETFs per se because I think that they offer a very convenient way of people who don't know a lot about individual shares of just buying the index and thus never underperforming at an extremely reasonable low price. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I'm actually a bit of a believer in this domestic China market because I feel, and we've been saying this to the private capital clients, that the Chinese economic time is about to improve, which goes to say that the central bank will be easing more and more. And I think that's what's going to spill in a little bit like what we've been seeing in Europe of late when the Draghi sort of introduced QE2 as of only last month. What do you think about that, Francis? You agree? Yeah, I think so, because everybody's trying to print money. And for China, they have a special reason for it, because they don't want to print more money because they will only create more bad debt. But they, now they find a, a convenient way of boosting the economy without really spending money is really to let the China Daima buy up all the stocks. And then when you have when the stock market rises and you have a feel good feeling and everybody go and spend money. So that is a good thing for the economy. All right, Francis. Thank you so much uh, for welcome. joining us this morning. That is Thank Francis Lun. Okay.
He is the CEO of GEO Securities. All right, let's uh, take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 19,848. Australia's ASX index is down uh, two-tenths of a percent to 5,912. And Sol's Kospi is up uh, just one point or point zero seven percent to 2,100. In currencies, one euro is currently worth uh, one point five US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 120 yen and one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 37 cents. Starting from April 1st, 2015, plastic shopping bag charging will be fully implemented to cover all retail outlets. All plastic shopping bags, including flat top bags, non-woven bags and paper bags with plastic coating will be subject to a charge of 50 cents each or more. Retailers giving out free plastic bags may be prosecuted. Use less. Waste less. Bring your own bag. For details, please visit the Environmental Protection Department's website. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and the Apple Watch is a huge new release for the company. It's the first new product made since the iPad and the death of Steve Jobs and the first product made uh, entirely under the watch of Tom, uh, Tim Cook. But does it ultimately give you bang for your buck? Bloomberg's Just Polsky spent a week with the new watch and he can tell you if it's any good. The watch is gorgeous in a surgical, sterile, sci-fi kind of way. But it is a digital watch, and several people pointed out to me that it reminded them of Casio's calculator watch, which was very popular in the 80s. It also looks a little bit like other smartwatches on the market, namely Samsung's Galaxy Gear. If I were looking at the Apple Watch in a jeweler's case next to an Omega and a Rolex and a Breitling, I don't know if I'd necessarily choose Apple's version over the others. But after wearing it for a week or so, I have started to get comfortable with it and maybe even like it a little bit. Just like any Apple product, it's not about good looks alone. This thing is packed full of advanced technology. For instance, the display has a new type of pressure sensitivity the company calls Force Touch, which responds to not just where you press on the display, but how hard you press. Also, when you get a notification on the watch, you feel an intense buzzing and sometimes almost like a tapping of a bell. And that's thanks to the Taptic engine, which controls vibrations on the watch. But most importantly, there's the digital crown, which is a new navigational method Apple's created that mimics the crown on a regular watch, but you use it on the Apple Watch for moving through lists, selecting options in apps, and zooming in and out of photos and maps. It's a pretty incredible package, and in my opinion, the most advanced piece of wearable technology you can buy right now. But of course, the Apple Watch is also a watch, and it does the job of telling you the time, just sometimes not when you want it to. You see, there are sensors in the Apple Watch that tell it when to turn on the screen and when to turn off the screen. Sometimes when you bring it up to your face to check on the time, it works perfectly. But every once in a while, it doesn't turn on. And that can be completely maddening when you just want to know what time it is. Fun fact, Apple uses something called coordinated universal time to keep all of its watches in sync. It's extremely precise, and if you're in a room full of Mickey Mouse faces, all of the Mickey feet are tapping in sync. But of course, the watch is more than a watch. It's actually really powerful, but learning how to use it can take a little time. That's for two reasons. The first is that there's just a lot of new ways to interact with the watch, like the digital crown. The second is that the watch extends and sometimes replicates the functions of your phone. 
At first, I was having a kind of internal battle over whether I should check a notification on the watch or on the phone. But that got better with time. Just like the phone, the watch gets every notification that comes through to you. That means every email, every text message, every Twitter message pings the watch the way it pings your phone. If you're really busy and you're talking to people a lot, that becomes overwhelming really fast. What I realize is that you really have to call your notifications and think about what's most important. Eventually, I got to a place where only the most important notifications hit my watch and everything else went to the phone. In some ways, and I'm sure Apple would not love to hear this, the watch is sort of a miniature phone on your wrist. You can make calls with it, you can send text messages with it, you can get navigation on it. In fact, it does a lot of what your phone does. But there are a few features that are brand new to the watch and brand new for Apple. Some of these new features are great, like the Activity app, which gives you this very low-pressure, low-effort way of tracking your exercise all day long. I found myself using this a lot and looking at it a lot and thinking about whether or not I was very healthy or terribly unhealthy. Spoiler alert, terribly unhealthy. What is great about the Apple Watch, though, is that it's got these little widgets on the display called complications. Those can be things that tell you the weather or when your next appointment is or the phases of the moon. I actually found them really useful. They're one of my favorite things about the watch. And it did make me wonder why we don't have any of those things on the iPhone home screen. But some features are decidedly less successful, like the ability to send your heartbeat to somebody. This is cool if it's your wife or girlfriend, but it seems weird to send your heartbeat to anybody else. And once you've done it one time, well, you've done it. Also, you can sketch things out on the watch and send them to other watch wearers, but the screen's only an inch and a half, so my sketches were mostly limited to weird faces and question marks. Apple's also introduced a set of 3D animated emojis, which I'm sorry to say are less expressive and interesting than regular old emojis. Finally, there's something called glances that Apple is offering up as a new way to get information quickly on the watch. You swipe up from the bottom and you get a set of little cards. And on those cards, there's single serving pieces of information like the latest tweet in your timeline or your heartbeat. I kind of wanted to love these, but the problem is they're inconvenient, they're hidden, and they often have to load from the phone. So you don't get the information right away. You get a spinning wheel. I think they could be good with time, but they need a lot of work. I don't know, Enzio. Does that sound like it's life-changing or even game-changing? Well, it sounds like it's bottom line changing. I mean, if you went to IFC on Saturday, according to some friends, there was a massive queue waiting for these Apple Watches. And it just seems to me as if it's, again, it's Apple's genius at marketing, something which is basically a piece of fruit. Yeah, I wonder whether it was the phases of the moon or the send your heartbeat to someone factor. That, Mercury uh, is going retrograde, so it can't be that one. Okay, I'm going to take what you say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, quick announcement from the transport department. Uh, due to a vehicle breakdown, the slow lane of Cross Harbor Tunnel in Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong bound traffic is closed to all traffic. There are traffic queues on Princess Margaret Road, which end at Argyle Street and uh, Gascon Road bound ends at Waterloo Road. Traffic is very congested now and motorists are advised to drive with utmost care and patience and pay attention to TV and radio announcements for further conditions. Well, Korean skincare 
skincare brands like Sulawasu and uh, La Neige may not ring a bell for all of our English-speaking listeners, but Asians and mainland tourists specifically are known to hoard large shopping bags of these cosmetics as they cruise down on Canton Road. A more Pacific, the Korean skincare group that owns an array of skin uh, skincare brands are particularly popular in Hong Kong and Asia. And according to Euromonitor International, the group is the 11th largest skincare products maker by market share. In 2014, the group's net income climbed 36% to a record 204 million US dollars. So let's bring in Bloomberg News' China consumer correspondent Liza Lin uh, to understand why this company is doing so well. She joins us now on the phone from Shanghai. Good morning, Liza. So, Liza, how big is Amor Pacific and uh, how come it is so unknown to many investors and just, you know, people outside Asia? That's right. Amari Pacific, well, it's not a household name so far outside of Asia. I mean, it's not a household name in Asia at all yet, but its brands are. I mean, you walk down Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, you see Innisfree Shops, you see Etude House, you see Laneige. So, I mean, the brand names actually carry a lot more familiarity with, you know, the consumers than the company itself. But... Um, the company, it's not, it's the world's 11th largest cosmetics company. And even though it's not the biggest, but it's certainly one of the fastest growing. And uh, Liza, has the company itself birthed all of these brands or did uh, uh, some of them come about by acquisition? No, actually, the company is famous for not acquiring brands. So what they do is they have a R&D center and then they grow these brands specifically um, starting from Korea, and then they start to spread it out around Asia. Um, The way the company actually uh, started was way back in Korea when they started to grow these brands in their R&D centers, and then now they're doing a global push. So they're expanding into places like Singapore, they're expanding into greater China, they're going into Malaysia, and last I heard, even Philippines. And for certain brands, they're going into the U.S. as well. So for the Laneige brand, uh, which is somewhat of like their mastiche brand, they're going into the U.S. right now. So they're gradually expanding outside of Korea. And that's why it's very promising because, you know, that's where the next big wave of growth comes from the international market. And Liza, how big of a contender would you say they'd be to global cosmetics companies like L'Oreal or Shiseido? I would say they're a promising contender. I mean, Amore Pacific doesn't have the history that L'Oreal and P&G, nor the marketing, you know, marketing history that these brands have. So you will see your big three still in the big three for a while, but Amore Pacific has grand ambitions. So apart from the countries that I mentioned they were going to push into earlier, they're also looking at um, other parts of North America. They're looking at South America. You know, they're even analyzing markets like India. Uh, they are, they're not in yet, but, you know, these are all potential markets in which P&G and L'Oreal already have a stronghold. So, you know, should Amore Pacific go into these markets, they're, you know, they will definitely be a contender. But right now on the global scale, they're still about the 12th biggest. Um, but the interesting bit about Amore is, like I said, you know, the 
the growth comes after. They have a plan of more than doubling their sales by 2020, and that will bring them to about 11 billion US dollars. All right, Liza. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is Liza Lin, and she is Bloomberg News' China consumer correspondent talking about a more Pacific. A quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. The Nikkei is up uh, 0.01% to 19,907. Australia's ASX index is up three-tenths of a percent to 5,909. And Seoul's Kospi is up 0.04% to 2,099. Brent crude oil currently stands at $58.16. And gold is at $1,199.20. So Enzio, here we are once again at uh, the end of uh, a Tuesday, but lots more to go this week. What should we be looking out for? I think you want to be looking out for the U.S. profits coming out, especially Intel, Johnson Johnson, Bank of America. I think that in the near term, the market will have a bit of a dip, but because there are huge cash buybacks coming on, I think that market will continue motoring, albeit at a much slower pace than last year. But you want to keep on buying Europe, China, and Hong Kong. All right. Thank you, Enzio. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Enzio von File, and he is an investment strategist at Private Capital. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, closing up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be fine, very dry during the day, uh, with a maximum temperature of about 26 degrees Celsius. The current temperature right now is 18 degrees, and the relative humidity is 44%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. The federal judge in Washington has given pre-